Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, just a quick review, if you don't mind. Something that the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Romans, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, assumes. Something the Apostle Paul, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, assumes. That Jesus lived, died on the cross, and rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to get there towards the end of the message, we won't turn there now, but here are some facts that the Bible, Romans, assumes the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to repeat it again. You ready? Jesus lived, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. These are just some facts that he assumes. Why does he assume these facts? Because he talked to people who saw this happen. So we're going to get to you in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, religious scholars, whether religious or irreligious, at least agree on these facts. Are you ready? That Jesus lived, and that Jesus died, and that the tomb was empty. These facts are really indisputable from a historical perspective. The question of whether or not he rose from the dead depends on whether or not you believe the 500 or so people that saw him and had lunch with him. So Peter, uh, Paul assumes those facts. Jesus died on the cross. How many times am I going to repeat it? Till it's annoying. Jesus died on the cross, lived, died, rose from the dead. The book of Romans then is the answer to this question. Okay, lived, died, rose again. What difference does that make? So what difference does that make that a guy came, lived, died, and rose again? What does it matter to me that this happened? And the book of Romans is the answer to that. The answer to that is this, that it's the means by which sinners receive forgiveness and eternal life. That's the a theme of the book of Romans. It's 16 chapters of sinners need forgiveness and eternal life. A sinner with forgiveness and no eternal life has no hope. A sinner with eternal life and no forgiveness has no hope. What do we need? We need forgiveness and we need eternal life. And the book of Romans is going to argue you gain forgiveness and you gain eternal life by putting faith in Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead. It really is that, that simple. And the argument of the book of Romans is a religious argument for the Jew. And the argument from the book of Romans is a philosophical argument for the Gentile, and the argument from the book of Romans is a legal argument for the Jew and the Gentile. So we get it all. It's a philosophical, religious, legal argument that the gospel, Jesus died for sinners and lives for sinners, is the hope of mankind. That's how we gave, how we gain forgiveness. Now what we're doing in the book of Romans as we move through it, moving into into chapter 10 and chapter 11, we're going to begin looking at this. If I am a Gentile and I put my faith in Jesus for forgiveness, do I need to become a Jew? Is that a fair question? Now for us, you maybe have never asked that question. When you got saved, if you think the moment where you encountered the truth of the gospel, did you ask yourself at that moment as you prayed a prayer or uh, were moved by faith in your heart at that moment, did you say to yourself, do I need to be Jewish? Did you? I don't know, many of us didn't, but for folks in the first century, that would have been a question often asked her. Now that I believe in Jesus, we all know he was Jewish, do I now need to become a Jew? And we need to understand that from a gospel perspective. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. So here's the title of the message. The most exclusive club that anyone can join. The most exclusive club. Because it really is a very exclusive club. Only perfect people who live forever can be a part of it. And anyone can join. 
So let's look at it. Romans 10, 5 through uh, 13. We're going to start in verses 5 through 8. In order to join this club, do I need to work hard or punish myself? Like say you, for example, you offend somebody. I know nobody here would ever offend anybody with what you say or do. But let's just pretend, hypothetically, you say something, really, that I might say, really, and you offend somebody. And they're offended, and you realize, well, that was dumb, why did I say that? Oh, because I always say stuff like that, but now I regret it. So now you're trying to think, well, how do I fix this? I got this person I offended, I want them offended because I like them and I want them to talk to me and stuff, and, and I don't know how to fix it. So you really have two options, if you summarize all the options, you got two options. Number one is you can promise this person, you ready? I will never do that again. Anybody ever done this one? Listen, I promise, I will never back up into your car again. I will never uh, dry something in the dryer that should have been hung up again. I will never... I don't know what it is. Say that again. And so what you're doing is you're making a promise of what? Future righteousness. Please restore my relationship based on my personal guarantee I won't make mistakes anymore. What are the odds of that happening? Zero. But we do this nonetheless. So one way to try and restore that relationship is to make a plea for, I promise not to do it again, which is an effort towards this relationship should be restored because I can achieve personal righteousness. Now, the other option is one you may choose if you're like me. You're like, I can't behave well. So I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to grovel. I'm going, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible person. I'm, I'm a moron. I should have never done it. And I'm going to whip myself on the back and I promise to do the dishes. And I'm going to, you know, whatever. Now I'm going to pay for it. So these are the two options we're trying to restore a relationship. Try to establish a sense of I can do it, I can be good, or I can't be good, so I'm going to try and pay my own way. And these are two significant errors in relationship we make because none of these things work. But the, the reality is this is also how most people are trying to restore their relationship with God. They're trying to see God through personal piety and righteousness or through self-abasement and uh, self-flatulation and whipping themselves and punishing themselves. And the, and the Bible here is going to tell us neither of these ways gain God. In fact, there's a third way, which is faith. So let's look at verse 5, Romans 10. Moses writes about righteousness that's based on the law. Moses is going to contrast righteousness by law and by faith. Here's what righteousness based on the law, he says. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's referring here to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. You want to look it up, you can look it up. He basically quotes it. And what he's saying is the person who wants to be righteous by the law has to not merely do the commandments, but live by them. So let me explain what he's not saying because the sentence can be confusing. You may be saying, if I do the commandments, I gain life, meaning I have life or I live by them. That's not what he's saying in Romans or in Leviticus. What he is saying if you are going to do the commandments, doing of the commandments is your living. Your life is the doing of the commandments. If you're going to gain righteousness by doing the commandments, it's a full-time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week job. Because a smart Jew might have been thinking this. You know, okay, we got the law. I've got to go to temple three times a year. I've got to take an offering. I can't, plow, I can't harvest my fields to the edge. Uh, I can't glean over the grapes twice. I've got to give my uh, firstborn uh, to the temple of my sheep and goats and my firstborn son. I don't give the temple. I've got to go pay the guy. Okay, if I check all the boxes, I do all my law stuff over here, so all my leftover time is my time. 
go to the Mediterranean, do some surfing, maybe hike up Mount Carmel, maybe go over to the Dead Sea and float. That's fun, I guess. That's what people do. So my time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give God my law time so that I can have my my time over here, which I've, which I've covered. So this is all me. In fact, God, don't come over here because there might be a few things I'm going to do in the my time that you're not going to want to be a part of. That's, that's my business because I'm giving you this over here. And Paul is telling us and reminding us what Moses said in Leviticus. If you're going to have righteousness by the law, you are going to live law. There was a reason Moses said, listen, put the, put the scripture on your doorpost. Put it on a thing on your forehead. When you're awake and sitting around, talk about it with your kids, about the crossing of the Red Sea and, and conquering of Jericho. Never let stop talking about it. Because if you're going to achieve your righteousness by, by the law, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until the day you die. So the question we have to ask this, when are you finished becoming righteous through the law? It's never done. It's never finished. There's never an off time. Verse 6, here's the contrast. But, that's a word of contrast, right? But the righteousness based on faith says this. Here's where we're going. He's going to say this. I'm not going to try and be super righteous, and I'm not going to punish myself. Faith says there's another way to righteousness. Here's what it says. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Who can be so righteous that you don't need Jesus to come to earth? You'll go to heaven and see him. None of you. None of first service either. Actually, nobody on planet earth. Let's be honest. And what he's saying, don't say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to be so righteous, I can just knock on the door of heaven and say, hey, Jesus is here. You can't do it. It's not possible. Don't say that in your heart. Also, verse 7, don't say in your heart, I will descend down into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. Meaning, I'm going to debase myself in, in self-humiliation and punishment. I'm going to look for ways to pay my own way. Do not seek either way. In fact, righteousness in relationship with God is a whole other way by faith. And I want to look at a passage in the Old Testament to show us how this works. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 in and this passage will be prominently displayed in your own copy of the scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Now, if you, I don't know if you know this, but Moses wrote Deuteronomy probably just a few months, maybe a year before he died, before the people of Israel were going to invade the promised land. Um, and so Moses here is giving them a charge when they're getting ready to go into the promised land and conquer the people of Canaan, kick out the inhabitants of Canaan. Here's what he says. Listen, don't say in your heart, after the Lord uh, your God has thrust them out before you, that is the people of Canaan, don't say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. So the people are going to kick Canaanites out of, the, out, of, out of Canaan, and he's saying, don't say to yourself, you know why God kicked all the people out of Canaan? Because we are the Jews, we are righteous. He's saying this, don't say that. Why doesn't he want them to say it? Because it's not true. So why would God kick them out of the land of Canaan if they're not righteous? Why would he do that? Let's look. Where did I leave off? Whereas, here's what is it. Here's why he says they kicked kick them out. Middle of verse 4. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Okay, so why is he kicking out the Canaanites? First reason, there's a couple. First reason. 
The Canaanites were so wicked, God was going to punish them and kick them out of Canaan. And God had decided, I'll use Israel to do it. Did he use Israel because they were righteous? No. Did he use them because they were really strong militarily? No. Why did he use them? I don't know. He gets to do what he wants. So Israel goes in and conquers Canaan. Pay attention, though. Later on in Israel's history, God is going to kick them out of Israel. Who is he going to use to kick them out? The Assyrians and the Babylonians. Are the Assyrians righteous? No. Are the Babylonians righteous? No. And what does he say about the people of Israel in the promised land? You are more unrighteous than the people you kicked out. So what he's saying is that there's no righteousness that you ought to be claiming. I kicked the people out of Canaan because of their wickedness. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 9. Here we go. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It's because of the wickedness of those nations. God is driving them out before you. And what's the second reason? That he may confirm the word the Lord swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so second, first reason, Canaanites are wicked, time for them to go. Second reason the people of Israel get the promised land. Why? Because God said so. What do we call it when God makes a promise? Fancy word for promise? Covenant. The reason the people of Israel could put faith in God to go into the promised land is because God made a covenant with the people of Israel in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. So when Caleb, son of Jephunneh, said, let's go in and conquer those people, why was he so excited? Because he knew God keeps his promises. That's it. It's faith in the covenant-keeping God, that God will keep his promises. So God has made uh, this promise to the people of Israel, and he's asking them by faith to trust him that they may go into the promised land. God's work of salvation is covenantal. He makes a promise and says, do you believe me? Do you trust me? And this is the difference between earning God's favor through righteousness or trying to be punish ourselves to earn God's favor by saying, well, I should own my own sin. The difference is is saying, I know what God is like. He is a forgiving and merciful God who keeps his promises. And God said to the people of Israel, you get the promised land. And people of faith said, let's go get the promised land. Because God made that promise. All right, let's look back at Romans 10, verse 8, if you don't mind. Romans 10, verse 8. What's it say? The word is near. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And I'm just, just to briefly, word of faith here, what he's just saying another way is gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Word of faith here is the gospel. He's kind of quoting here from Deuteronomy 30. You can look at that on your own time. We don't have time this morning to go there. But what's the point he's making about the gospel, it being near to us? It's a covenant to us through Christ. God made a covenant to the people of Israel that they got the promised land and those who believe said, let's go get it. Now we realize that through Christ, God has made a covenant to us. What is that word of faith? What is the way God has made? It's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is relatively simple. Is this a complicated thing? Do I need to explain it? 
Oh, come on, the answer is always yes. Like, have you heard the gospel enough? Like, no, I'm good, I'm square. No, here we go. God made everything. And we completely ruined it with our sin. I mean, completely ruined it. We sinned, rebelled against God. Basically, we wanted to be God. We wanted all of God's stuff without God getting in the way. And so we sinned and ruined everything. As a result of our rebellion against God, all of us die. If you don't agree with me, you are, well, look at the data. Everybody dies. That's depressing. Unless you live forever. So what's the problem? We have sin. So the gospel says God himself, Jesus, came in the flesh, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, meaning the punishment we should have received. Instead, Jesus took on the cross. Then, three days later, he walked out the grave. He came to life. He is raised from the dead because you can't keep God dead. Just not possible. So as a result, the gospel tells us if we trust Jesus died for us and he rose from the dead, we gain his righteousness, sin's not a problem anymore, and we gain his life. Death isn't a problem anymore. It's merely by faith. So that's the covenant God has made to us in Christ Jesus. Every time we take communion, we're reminded the new covenant in his blood And what we're saying is we have been made, God has made us a promise. If we trust Jesus, sin is gone, death does not have any uh, hold over us anymore. It is not complicated. This is not complex. It is not difficult to understand. Not only that, the gospel is substantiated by a number of evidences. Number one, are you a sinner? Do I need to argue this point with you? If you are not convinced you are a sinner, ask someone who knows you. Now I know what you're going to say. Well, I'm not that bad. And what do we normally do when we're confronted with the reality that we're sinners? That we lie and we cheat and we steal. And when we don't, we're thinking about doing it. What's our normal go-to? Well, I'm not Hitler. Like, really? Like, that's your go-to for righteousness. Like, I'm righteous. How do I know I'm righteous? I'm not Hitler are you Mussolini? I mean, I don't know. What's your, at what level of uh, terribleness do you decide you're righteous? How about this? How low of a God do you serve if you can earn his righteousness? I mean, if you can earn righteousness, your God is lame. He's not that righteous. All right, so we know we're sinners. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know that? Hundreds of people saw him. So everything about the gospel aligns with reality. The problem is with the gospel, it confronts the reality of our heart. So if the gospel is simple, and the gospel is straightforward, and the gospel is right in our face, why don't we believe it? You know, speaking about the gospel being simple, I remember when I was a kid, I went to Wilson Elementary School. Any, Any other Wilson, I don't know if I can say it. When I was a kid, it was the Wilson Warriors. It's now the Wilson Warrior Hawks. Anybody know other Wilson Elementary Schools? Kids? Oh, what, really? Megan was a Wilson kid. Wow, okay. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> Your parents could sign a permission slip for Bible release time. Yeah, so we would leave class and we'd go out, get on a short bus. It was green or blue or something, and there was no seats in it, it was just carpeted. And then you would all sit around, and then a, a person would get up and tell a Bible story, yes, with a flannel graph. It was unbelievable. 
So if a kid at Wilson Elementary School can get the gospel, why don't we get it? It's not complicated. Let's look at a guy in the Old Testament to try and understand why the gospel is so hard to believe. This guy's name is Naaman. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a Syrian. If you're Jewish, when I say Syrian, boo. If you're Syrian, man, Naaman's, a, Naaman's an hombre. We love Naaman. He's a tough guy. He's a general. He's very high in the army, big time guy. In one of his raids in Israel, one of his many raids in Israel, he kidnapped a Jewish girl. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? What do we call that nowadays? That's human trafficking. I mean, that's what we call it nowadays. And it, it, was it not human trafficking then? Remember, the Bible is full of bad people. That's a problem. So this guy's kidnapped a Jewish girl, and she is a slave in his home, and one day he develops leprosy. I can't tell if you're Jewish or Syrian. Jewish people, yeah! Syrian people, oh no, not Naaman. Okay? The Jewish slave goes to him, dude, don't worry about it, bro. That's in the Hebrew. There's a guy in Israel that heals that stuff all the time. His name, he's a prophet of some kind. Why don't you, why don't you call up Israel and, uh, I mean COVID, Zoom him, and, um, and no tainer. So he sends a note to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel blows his mind. What are you talking about? We don't heal leprosy? What do we look like? So Elisha, the prophet, sends a message to the king. He says, don't worry about it, man. Just send Naaman to my house. I'll take care of it. So Naaman gets his whole group. I mean, there's just a long train of camels and donkeys and important officials and money and, and clothes, and he's going he's gonna to pay for this miracle. He shows up at Elisha's house. He rolls up with this long train of important people, lots of money. And Elisha can't even be bothered to get out of his lazy boy. He sends out his servant. Go tell Naaman, dip seven times in the Jordan River, you'll be fine. Anybody been to the Jordan River? I don't know if the Jordan River is different then than it is now. When I was standing in the Jordan River, it smelled like catfish. And not a live catfish. It just doesn't smell good. It's just sort of, it's not a fast-moving river, so there's a lot of, it's just sort of, you, you know, stuff. And there's things hitting your legs when you're standing. It's weird. I don't know what it is. But yeah, I, what I'm thinking is, Naaman is going, I've been in cleaner water, and he's going to get to that point. Look what he says in verse 11, 2 Kings 5. Naaman was angry. Behold, I thought I would surely uh, have the prophet come out and he would stand up and call in the name of the Lord, wave his hand over the leprosy. Aren't there rivers in Damascus like the Abana and the Farper? They are much better, in fact, than all the water of Israel. Why couldn't I wash in those rivers? He turned away and went in a rage. So here's the thing. He's got leprosy and the prophet said, all you got to do is seven dips. And you're clean. And he, and he loses his mind in rage. And his servant goes up to him. He says, Father. He calls him Dad. Father, this is a good deal. I mean, I, mean, I know, I know. I mean, he could have come out and done the little wavy thing. There's lots of things he could have done. What are some other things that Elisha should have done in that situation? Think about it. Why didn't he ask for the slave girl back? You know what you ought to do? I'll heal you, but you've got to let that slave girl go home. She's not even mentioned. 
How about return some of the money you stole from Israel? I got an idea, Naaman. How about there's a peace treaty? I mean, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, isn't it? We healed Naaman. The Syrians finally stopped invading us. Or maybe financial. At least Elisha could have collected a little money, certainly for charity. He would have supported the, the prophetic guild with the money from Naaman, right? Oh, why not have him invade Edom or invade Moab or invade the Midianites or, or tell Naaman to go and invade the Philistines? And then when he has a great victory and another enemy is handled, I'll heal your leprosy. See, all this stuff is really good, right? What do you think Naaman would have said if Elisha would have said any of those things? Oh, man, I'm on it. I get to earn my healing? This is Naaman, the earner of earners in Syria. Elisha had the gall to tell him he doesn't get to do anything for it. And he does what all of us do. He got mad. No, 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 no. I will earn my righteousness. He lost his mind. But thankfully, his servant shared the gospel with him, said, no, 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 Naaman, don't worry about it. Just dip and get clean. So Naaman then dips in the, in the, in the river, and the, and the leprosy goes away, and in fact, Naaman gets saved. How do I know Naaman gets saved? Because he said so in verse 15 of 2 Kings 5. Naaman returned to Elisha, and he came and stood before Elisha, and he said this, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now from me an offering. So what he, say, he makes a confession here that many people in Israel would not have said. He says the only God there actually is, is the God of Israel. And then he makes an offer to Elisha. And Elisha says, no, I don't want your money. I don't want, no, you can't give me anything. So Naaman realizes you don't earn God's favor. You just receive it. And so now he's starting to get it. So he does the right thing. What does he do when he realizes you don't earn God's favor, you just enjoy it? What's he do next? He asks for more stuff. Look what he does. He can't pay for it. Then Naaman says this. Well, if you're not going to take my money, how about this? Can I take two mule loads of earth? Because from now on, I want to offer offerings and sacrifices to, to the Lord of Israel only. So he says, I want to take dirt from the promised land to Syria so that I can offer offerings to God only. No more offerings to any other gods at all. Why is this amazing? Where do you worship the God of Israel? Do you do that in Syria? Like if it's Passover and the weather's kind of crummy in Israel, do you say, you know what, but the weather's nice in Damascus. Let's get an Airbnb, get an Uber. No, you don't do that. Where do you worship the Lord? In Jerusalem. So, Naaman is asking the prophet if he can take Jewish dirt so he can offer sacrifices to God in Syria. Let's just say you're in Jerusalem. Who offers the sacrifices? Does anybody offer the sacrifices? No. Jewish people can't offer sacrifices. Levites and the sons of Aaron offer sacrifices. Naaman has asked to worship God like a Jew in Syria with no priest whatsoever. It gets worse. I'm starting to question this guy's faith, actually. It gets worse. Then he asked this, the goal of this Yahoo. Listen, the other thing is, Elisha, I've got my master, and he goes into the house of Ramon. I like the Italian version. He goes into the house of Ramon. 
And, and he worships. And when he's in the house of Ramon, he leans on my arm because he's an old man. So I got to help hold him up. So when he goes into the house of this pagan God, I go in with my master and he holds on to, and he bows down to this pagan God. And I got to kind of, I got to bow a little. Like it's kind of bowy. And so I'm wondering, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the, can the Lord pardon me for that? Like, is that cool? Can I do that? So listen to what he's asking. I want to worship God in Syria without a priest, without Israel, without a Jew, anywhere near. And I want God to be cool with the fact that in my line of work, I'm going to take my master into a pagan house of worship. Is that, is that okay? And what does Elisha say? You know, I don't know that you were saved, actually. We're going to need to go through the four spiritual laws Bible track again. What does he say? Let me read it. Verse 19. Elisha says, go in peace. Can you believe that? Can you believe that a guy just gets saved by faith? And God is totally okay with it. How do I know God is okay with it? Because God said so. Did you know God said he was totally okay with Naaman? In fact, God was so okay with Naaman, he used him as an example of faith. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus had just talked to some folks in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. And he says, listen, no prophet's acceptable in his hometown. But listen, let me tell you how faith works. Because you don't have any faith in me, Jesus is saying, because you knew me when I was a kid. So let me explain to you how faith works, folks. When there was a famine in the land, no Jews got help from Elijah except a widow of Zarephath. Not a Jew. Ouch. Not only that, there were loads of lepers in Israel. Elisha only healed one of them. And he was from Syria. His name was Naaman. Do you think Jesus was there when he was dipping in the Jordan River? Absolutely, of course. He's God. He always has been. And now Jesus, when he comes as man of the flesh, is sitting there saying, remember Naaman? I do. And I loved his faith. He trusted the covenant-keeping God, and he just took it. And he worshiped God because God is a covenant-keeping God on Jewish dirt in Syria. And when he had to go into the house of Ramon with his master, he had peace knowing he was trusting in a covenant-keeping God who believed because he had believed. The most exclusive club anyone can join, Naaman gets it. But a lot of times we're like Naaman. When we discover the gospel is that easy, we say, no, 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 we want something to do. I want to impress God. And Naaman says, I don't, I don't want to impress God. I'll just take his promises. What do we call that? It's just faith. I trust that God really is that good. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Romans 10. We're going to do this quickly. This is sort of a transition section of this passage, but it's worth uh, recognizing how do we join this most exclusive club that anyone can uh, join? It's an act of faith. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. With the heart you believe, with your mouth you confess. He's not talking about two-step salvation program or salvation liturgy, that there's some kind of magic incantation. What he is saying here is salvation is a matter of the heart, and salvation in our hearts moves us to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. 
He is not saying that there's some kind of two-step salvation process here. He's just saying, he's just describing for us what faith looks like. It's in my heart, my inner person saying, how do I know I'm righteous? Because Jesus said I'm righteous if I trust him. Being verbal here is not necessarily the point. The point is this, is Jesus Lord or not? Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I told you we would get to it. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says. I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me." How do we join this exclusive club? We trust that what Jesus did on the cross was for us. It's a matter of faith, just like it was for Naaman. It is for us. Do we trust the covenant promises of God? Okay, one, let's look at verses 11 through 13 of Romans 10. Some of you are thinking this, uh, or if, if not you, the people in the first service were, so we'll just pin it on them. We might think of, of salvation the way we think of going to a, a nice restaurant, I don't know if I can think of any restaurant in Medford that this way, but maybe Portland or San Francisco has one like this. They're really nice restaurants, so there's certain expectations of your appearance. Okay, so you call them up to make a reservation. Hey, yeah, uh, El Snooty Pants, I would like a reservation. And they say, okay, what's your name? Okay, so-and-so, I want a party too. Okay, good, we've got a, we've got a really nice table right, ni- right by the door into the kitchen. You'll love it. You'll get to see all the waiters all night long. Good, okay, that sounds great. And so you make the reservation. All you got to do to make the reservation is call them up or use the uh, web, right? So then you show up at the door. You have a reservation, and maybe you're like me. Going out to eat, nice restaurant, you put on your nice jeans. I mean, they're, they're like clean. I mean, I washed them, like, recently. They, they have been washed at one point in their history, right? So you show up, or maybe they don't mind the denim, but, but you're wearing a T-shirt, and... Uh, and uh, you know, I'm trying to think of what your T-shirt would say. But probably don't tread on me. I don't know. Some of you, I don't know. Can't think of any. I won't, there's some others I'm thinking of that will refrain. And so they say, you know, you know, we'll loan you a jacket. You can't come in here without a jacket on. We'll loan you a jacket. Like, who else has been wearing this jacket? They put it on, and it's, it's, they got the sleeves are right here. Because they, they want everybody to know you were the guy that didn't bring your jacket. Well, this is how we think of the church and how we think of the body of believers. Oh, sure, anybody can get saved, but once you're in the body of Christ, you better clean up your act. Like, you can, yeah, you can make a reservation by calling on the name of the Lord. When you show up at the door, you better have your jacket on. And this is, we think, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Sanctification, or becoming more like Jesus, is work your tail off alone. And in fact, it's not only work your tail off alone, we will make sure you know what, we, what you're supposed to look like. As it turns out, the way the church has historically done this, we don't want you to look like Jesus. Turns out he was annoying. We want you to act like, like us. We're going to explain to you how this salvation rolls out. And it turns out we want you more like everybody else, not more like you, like Jesus. Let's look at it. Most exclusive club that anyone can join, is available to anyone. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on 
all who call on him. That's the key there. Who is he bestowing his riches on? All who call. So how soon after salvation are we heirs to the kingdom of God? Instantly. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In a fire department, if you want to be a fireman, you apply for a job. Your first year, you're called a probie, probationary fireman. And at the end of that year, if you're good at putting out fires and not getting people killed, you can keep your job. But at the end of that year, you may not keep your job. There is no probationary period in the life of a Christian. It is either heir to the kingdom of God by the work of Christ through faith or not yet saved. There is no distinction in the kingdom of God. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is in. Anyone who is in by faith are fully in. No qualifications, no ranking system, no probation period, no limitation. Everybody in the kingdom by faith is an heir to the kingdom of God. No exceptions, no qualifications. He then quotes in verse 11, an Old Testament quote from Isaiah to substantiate the universal availability of salvation in God's plan. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's from Isaiah chapter 28. Jesus is Lord of all. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Jesus is Lord of all. Let me put it this way. Jesus is Lord of all Jews who believe in Christ willingly and enthusiastically. Jesus is Lord of all Greeks who believe in Jesus Christ willingly and enthusiastically. What's your least favorite sin? What's your least favorite? I'm trying to think of what your least... There's a big group here, so you might have a, a least favorite sin. Um... Let's talk about meth addiction. I'm picking one that maybe, maybe really annoys you. Like how, like how hard is it to get a job and stay off meth, right? Some of you think this, right? You're driving down the freeway, you see Tent City, and you're going, like how hard is it just to get a job and not do meth? Like is this a complicated thing? It really bothers you, right? Jesus, for meth addicts in Christ, is willingly and enthusiastically their Lord. So now you're qual- I see what you're doing. Well, meth addicts aren't in Christ. Really? We want to do that. Then what's your sin that is okay? Well, certainly guys who yell at their wife too much are in Christ. I mean, everybody loses their temper, right? I only look at a little porn. What? Jesus is willingly and enthusiastically Lord of sinners who have trusted him. And there's no in group, there's no out group, there's no awesome sauce and still on probation. It's just in Christ, heir of the kingdom of God, or not. There is no distinction. We won't turn there because there's no time. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14, Peter couldn't get this. He was in Christ, he was hanging out with Gentiles, Jews started showing up and he said... Man, I better not hang out with the junior level Christians. I better hang out with the varsity Jews. Because I don't want my rep to kind of get messed up. And what if people find out I'm hanging out? I mean, I'm kinda, I've been a Christian a while. I walked on water, Peter would say. And, and, and what, what Paul said to Peter to his face, you are not living in accordance with the gospel. You're living a heretic life. 
by excluding others or putting yourself on a different platform. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The way to be in the kingdom is to trust Jesus. Conversion does not drive us into a particular culture. Sanctification in Christ does not drive us into a particular culture. Jewish, Greek, American, whatever. I've got one last example. Do we have time? Howard voted for you. Sorry, guys. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go talk to that guy in the, uh, in the chariot. Who was in the chariot? Ethiopian eunuch. Was an Ethiopian guy from Northern Africa. What's a eunuch? Ask your mom. <laughs> Eunuchs were oftentimes put in charge of high-level officials in, in many cultures in that day, primarily because the thought was it prevented them from desiring to engage in unlawful activity. So likely he was an Ethiopian, either voluntary or a eunuch, either voluntarily or involuntarily, but it was a physical surgical procedure that now marred him. Why is this important? When do Ethiopians get to worship at the temple? If they become Jewish. That's when you get to worship. Then there's a procedure. You can do that, right? There's a way you do that. When does a eunuch worship at the temple? Never. There's not a procedure for that one. You're not going to get in. Read your Old Testament. You You think I'm lying? Read your Old Testament. Which part? The whole thing. Go ahead. Philip comes up. The guy's reading Isaiah. Like a sheep was led to the water. The lamb before its shears were silent. And the Ethiopian says, the writer talking about himself or somebody else. And he says, Isaiah was talking about somebody else. Who is he talking about? Jesus. And the Ethiopian gets saved. Then the Ethiopian says, hey, there's some water. I should get baptized. What happens when you get saved? You become a Baptist. It's amazing. That's not right. That's terrible. He knows culturally and importantly, he wants to be identified in Christ. And Philip says, what? Well, we kind of want to make sure you're a Christian. I mean, we want to make sure you got a track record. Right? I mean, I want to make sure you got good church attendance, maybe take a baptism class, maybe a theology class. Right? Yeah, he says, no, let's, let's do it. You're right, there's some water. You're saved. Water, saved, baptism. Let's do it. Baptizes him. When he comes out out the water, what is Philip's discipleship program training plan to get this Ethiopian on the right track? Spirit takes him away. The Ethiopian goes back home, and all he's got is faith in Christ and an old copy of Isaiah. Is there any chance this Ethiopian is going to be a Jewish Christian? No. What is his faith going to look like? His faith is going to look like the gospel applied to an Ethiopian living in Ethiopia with a Bible. And we somehow get convinced that when somebody comes in and gets saved, well, what we need for them to do is over the course of time, blend into us. We don't want people to be like us. We want people to be like Jesus. And that's what we should be aiming for. Whether they be Jew, or Greek, or Ethiopian, or whatever the background is. What does it look like to apply the gospel in your life? Okay, three quick things and then we'll close. We must be careful not to make the first century Jewish mistake, which, which is what I was just talking about. Salvation is for everyone. This is the mistake. I want to make sure I'm clear. Here's the mistake. Salvation is for everyone, but true believers act the way we do. 
do church the way we do, pray the way we do, whatever. Salvation is for everyone, but to be a true believer, you certainly need to be like me. Jewish, American, conservative, right? Certainly, if you know Jesus long enough, you will become Republican, right? I mean, in fact, oh, no, don't get me started, it's late. In fact, no, I'll just be honest, then we're going to move on. You're not, but I will. I think that's the goal of a lot of churches, a lot of Christians. Let's get them saved so the Republicans will start winning again. Are you serious? Heirs to the kingdom of God, we give a rip about that. I'm moving on. I know you won't. Go ahead, write your email right now. I'll take it. Secondly, God is not cheap. He hasn't withheld, withheld his riches from anyone. He has not withheld his glory from anyone who have trusted in Christ. God has not withheld the riches of his kingdom to any believer. All of us in Christ are full heirs to the kingdom of God. You cannot sin your way out of the kingdom of God. You cannot sin God into being in a bad mood with you. You have in Christ by faith God's favor. That is a joy of being a Christian. We even have God's favor during times of great suffering. Don't let the devil convince you you're a junior level of God's kingdom. You're heir to the kingdom of God and you're a big brother, Jesus Christ. Finally, this, for those of us who don't know Jesus, call on the name of the Lord. Stop trying to earn your way. Stop trying to punish your way. The only way to righteousness is faith in Christ alone. And everybody, everybody needs forgiveness. Join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross and is alive today. We thank you that we can have forgiveness of sins through faith in him. And we thank you that in Christ we are heirs to the kingdom of God and we can enjoy the promises you have made to us. God, we would pray that our lives would be lived in a manner that would recognize you are Lord and that we are grateful for the salvation you have given us. Will you forgive us when we get frustrated when other Christians don't act like we do? God, I would pray for those who are here this morning that don't know you. I would just ask in this moment, by your grace, you would move in their hearts to believe you. That you've made a promise that any who trust Jesus receive salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.